Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Right now, I want to get uh, some perspective from Jeff Dennis. He's head of a global emerging market strategy at UBS Securities. Jeff, I'm so glad that you could join us because yesterday we did see uh, the potential demise of the presidency of Michel Temer, although he refuses to resign. Um, but certainly this injects quite a bit more uh, turmoil into uh, the Brazilian economy, which already is uh, struggling. I want to get your take. Do you think, have you seen any signs that there is some level of contagion that's moving uh, away from Brazil and into other emerging markets assets as well? I think what's really interesting is you haven't seen very much contagion at all. Now, obviously, when you get an event like Brazil's sudden uh, deterioration of the political situation, you will get some heavy selling. In Brazil, MSCI Brazil, the dollar-adjusted index was down nearly 15% yesterday, and you did get some fallout over the rest of EM. But in general, we have the view here that... um, Particularly if you look at some of the allegedly vulnerable currencies in EM, some of the the high interest rate deficit currencies like uh, Turkey or South Africa, um, they've all held up, they've both held up relatively well. So I think it's fair to say that you've got a shock effect, of course. It looks like a one-day shock effect at the moment, but the contagion into EM has has been actually relatively limited. So is this just because low rates are here forever, people are just looking for that yield and they don't really care? Uh, Government, no government, turmoil, no turmoil, it doesn't really matter, more yield, that's all you need to know. Well, I mean, I think to a certain extent that it is that. I mean, our view on EM for this year has continued to be um, low U.S. bond yields, flat to weaker dollar, sucking money towards the emerging markets, pushing money towards the emerging markets, with some of these high interest rate markets, uh, you know, doing quite well because currencies have been strong. And we're not sure that scenario is particularly damaged by this Brazil story, although, of course, Brazil was your ultimate number one carry trade story, if you like, within EM. And also, I think what people are doing is they're saying, look, this is a uniquely Brazilian situation that's developed, which is obviously very uncertain. We've published a note on it, and um, really the the issue here is how does the political scenario play out in Brazil now? But um, a lot of uncertainty about that. But it's seen, I think, by investors as really being a a rather unique Brazilian situation, and the global market backdrop, um, notwithstanding, of course, also a dramatic sell-off in the U.S. market on Wednesday, is still seen as as fairly benign, and I think that's why EM is, uh, is held up very well. You know, Jeff, we've heard some comments from Mohamed Alarian of Allianz and others talking about the increase of leverage in the market. uh, And given the sort of low rate environment that nothing can seemingly shake. I mean, yes, as you point to, there was what a day of volatility and then things are back to normal again, even though we still haven't resolved anything uh, with the Brazilian situation of late. Uh, So Jeff, I'm wondering, from your perspective, have you seen or are you worried about increasing leverage uh, in emerging markets trades? Not really. I mean, I'm certainly not in a position to know how much leverage there is in terms of, you know, people's positioning within the market. What we focus on much more is how much leverage there is in uh, there is in economies and what that is doing for the economic outlook. And there's no doubt that since the global financial crisis, um, there's been a tremendous increase in leverage in, in EM countries. Obviously, everybody always talks about that with respect to China, but other countries as well, such as Korea. And, and the way we think that plays out is we think it, it 
it, it is is kind of a dampener, if you know, if you like, for growth um, in these economies, rather than necessarily being a significant financial market risk. It just makes it hard for these countries to grow, given how much debt has been taken on board. At the same time, our data tells us that over the last few quarters corporates in EM have begun to shed some of that leverage. So um, I don't think leverage within these economies is a new problem at all. It's a constraint on growth. Where we are in terms of perhaps people making leverage bets in the market, that may be very different. But I'm, you know, that's not something that I've got tremendous amount of data on at this point in time. Uh, so do you think that there still are opportunities in emerging markets debt? And if so, where? Well, I, I'm, I, I don't do debt, and so I, I'm not going to comment any detail on that, although certainly while this benign global environment continues, I think there is going to be – you're going to continue to see yields potentially staying relatively low on, on EM debt as a whole. But I think overall, overall on the equity side, we need to see if the markets are indeed going to settle down. We need to see how the Brazilian story will play out and will you get any further U.S. market weakness. But while yields are low and while the dollar's flat to weaker, um, I think – I think you'll find that emerging markets will will stabilize. We've got tremendous inflows coming into EM. Um, we're looking for strong earnings growth this year also across EM, although that's now at, at some risk, as our Latin strategist argued this morning in Brazil because of these events. And so, um, and of course, everybody's talking about the seasonals, you know, sell in May and go away. And that obviously, that sort of thing is always a concern. But frankly, we think the fundamental backdrop to EM is still relatively good. And I think it's in, impressive how this Brazilian crisis crisis, which suddenly developed in a market that people have generally wanted to be in, I think the way it's had limited effect on markets generally is quite impressive. Just real quick, do you think that this complacency over the long run is going to be problematic? Um, I don't think it is at this level, and I'm talking about that vis-a-vis as an EM strategist looking at valuations. I mean, valuations are a little on the high side in EM, but they're nothing like as stretched as they've been. Um, Let me rephrase that. They're not as stretched as they've been sometimes in the past. They're not as stretched as they are in the U.S. So I continue to believe that while this benign uh, scenario plays out, um, most of the market risks actually exist in the developed world. Are we going to see further U.S. market weakness, for example, are we going to see an upside surprise in inflation that pushes bond yields higher? Yeah. You know, nothing, neither of those particularly being in our scenario. But those are the concerns, and and I don't I don't think Mark, given where global markets are, I don't see EM as being complacent at all. Jeff Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. Jeff Dennis is head of global emerging market strategy at UBS Securities. He is based in Boston. I want to bring in someone to sort of help understand what's really driving this. Uh, Mike McClone joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Mike McClone is a commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Mike, how much is this a story of a supply-demand dynamic that's improving for oil? And how much is this the weakening dollar that is giving rise to the price of uh, crude? I guess the answer is yes to that. All right, understood. <laughs> it's it's both. Um, the one thing that it was the when we talked about oil earlier in the year is oil needed a flush. It was all bullish at fifty five and fifty three early in the year, and all the positions were very long. We all knew supply was coming on. 
And it's had its flush. We had that. And what's happened is we flushed out a lot of hedge funds positions. So it got down to 45, and now it's bouncing again. One thing that's really changed for oil is it got rid of the positions. We are, we, you know, we kind of took the tide away. So we saw what the market had, and OPEC, it brought out OPEC's resolve to cut. So that seems to be happening. And the dollar's weakened this year. The dollar's been stronger four years in a row. So that's been a bit of a pressure factor in all commodities. So I see oil is stabilizing, not bullish, but it looks like we got rid of the flush. I mean, anytime it goes higher, we get more production from the U.S. But it's done for now. It's it's a meh market. It's stuck. And it's in the middle of the range between 45 and 55. Well, although then you have to wonder if people are just getting rid of their shorts and going long, could the market be in for a swing to the downside later on if there isn't the same kind of support to sort of uh, keep it up? You know, in other words, people who are uh, have short bets that they're going to close out and, and sort of prop up or the market. Yeah, that's another that yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I have to lick my finger and put it up for the, the air and the wind because which way it goes now, I don't know. But one thing that was really had our ax to grind early in the air is positions were way too long. They're still a little bit long, but they're mostly flushed. And which way it goes next, I don't know, but it looks like it's very well supported around 45, very good resistance around 55, and we might be in a range for who knows how long. And one th- way you can really tell the range is position, emotions get really extreme at the at the ends, and we just got that again. So here we are in the middle. What do you do? You know, Momentum right now is up. <laughs> well, so next week, uh, OPEC members are going yeah. to meet and talk about uh, prolonging the output cuts, as they're uh, widely expected to do. Given the recent bounce up in prices, how will that affect these negotiations? Well, I think that's what happened. The, this, this bounce in prices is in the last few days, but for the year, crude oil is down, what, 10%? or so and got down to 45, to me, that brought out their resolve. And they have made the point clear, we're going to be cutting, offsetting U.S. production. It looks like it's happening and it looks like it should continue. And they have vested interest in doing so. And they have Russia on their side. So it looks like it's going to work for now. One thing we did a recent analysis on, if you look at all the estimates of production of OPEC, crude oil plus U.S. Um, liquid fuels, that drop in production has been is the first time it's dropped below 20, the 24-month moving average since the crisis. So if this is sustained, it should at least support the market. Now, a new bull market, that's another story. You know, a couple of years ago when we talked about the dramatic decline in crude values, people were using it as a proxy for global growth. People were saying that there isn't as much demand from China, that the U.S. inventories are too full. Now it's a totally different game. Yeah. Why is it not considered a proxy at all for economic growth? Or, you know, maybe should people be reading more into it uh, with respect to the global expansion? That is the key question, and you have to blame technology. That's what crude oil has going against it. And that's why I like to bring out that it's one of the key commodities. You can grow crude oil. I used to have a farm. We grow. We get a lot of our, our petroleum in this country, our, our gasoline, from corn now. So technology is working. You an ethanol farm? Well, no, hell no. <laughs> I had a farm and we, and we grew corn and, you know, it's a lot of it's now used for ethanol, 35% of the corn in this country. So basically 10% of our gasoline now is from ethanol. So that's what crude oil has going against it. And that's why I always go back to the metals. You can't grow metals. Um, gold, uh, copper, they've been mined since antiquity. And so looking ahead in commodities with the weaker dollar, metals usually perform the best. And that's part of the reason we put out a bit today that looks like the pillars of a line for commodities. Um, energy has stopped going down. Crude oil stopped going down. Looks like the the dollar has peaked, and the agriculture market should be doing well with massive U.S. exports: corn, beans, wheat, meat. Their exports off the chart, and really the main way to suppress those exports is higher prices. 
Mike McClone, thank you so much for joining us. Truly fascinating. I'm looking at iron ore contracts, which are up almost 5% today. So to your point, uh, they would be the beneficiaries of uh, some of this good news for them, the lower dollar, as well as a generally benign environment. Uh, Mike McClone is an industrials analyst, a commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York City. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. Well, we heard from Stephen Mnuchin, the uh, head of the Treasury Department here in the U.S. Yesterday, he gave his first congressional testimony since taking office, and it was a really wide-ranging discussion from tax reform uh, to financial regulatory reform. Nathan Dean was listening closely, and he had some uh, pretty compelling thoughts. Nathan Dean is a government analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, and he comes to us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. I want to just start with a bit of research that you put out today throwing some cold water on some of the promises and the hopes that have been reflected in markets for uh, tax reform and financial regulation. Could you just sort of uh, give us a sense of, of what your view is here? Yeah, you know, for tax reform, this is something that we've seen in the financial sector for ever since the election. I think everybody's seen what's happened to financial stocks. You know, one of the things that we point to is in late March when, you know, they failed to pass the Obamacare uh, vote for the first time, you know, bank stocks took about a 10% hit. Why? Because they wanted tax reform and it showed that there wasn't the, the ability to agree on something. And we've just seen that play out, you know, with the turmoil that's going on in the White House right now and some of the testimony from the Senate or from Stephen Mnuchin yesterday. You know, the financial sector wants tax reform. And there's just really no clear line to getting it done this year. Well, did, uh, did Treasury Secretary Mnuchin say anything yesterday that gave you hope about anything concrete? So, you know, one of the things that I think from yesterday's hearing that really surprised us was the amount of focus on housing reform, and specifically Fannie and Freddie. You know, Senator Crapo, the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, came out and spent a good deal of his opening statement talking about housing reform. Secretary Mnuchin came back and said, well, you know, housing reform is something that we're going to get to after Dodd-Frank, so that probably is around the July-August time frame. And so there seems to be some momentum building for actually to try and do something before the capital buffers of the GSEs go to zero, which is on January 1st of 2018. Well, and I'm looking at the shares of Fannie Mae, and uh, they did spike up after the election of President Trump and after Stephen Mnuchin uh, made some comments that gave people a sense that it was going to be uh, revamped, reformed, and possibly give more money back to shareholders. But then it came right back down and really didn't move much. So it's not that necessarily the market doesn't seem to be pricing in because I'm kind of big uh, reformer shift. 
It, it, exactly. And the one thing that we're telling our clients to be careful of is our comments from HAFA Director Mel Watt. You know, he said that he may stop the dividend payments uh, to help uh, with that capital situation. You know, they asked the Secretary of Treasury about that yesterday, and he just said, you know, I'm looking forward to working with the uh, FHFA on that. Um, but, you know, it, it, when I say that there's momentum, you just have to remember it's also it's Congress. You know, big things don't usually happen right now. And so, you know, as long as there's a filibuster in the Senate, and this would actually be, you know, a filibuster-type entity, housing reform would, would be subject to a filibuster. A lot of things have to happen before it actually gets done. You know, Nathan, one thing that I'm struck by is that the bulk of financial regulation really doesn't come from, say, Dodd-Frank, but from some of these regulatory agencies. And one thing that Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, Mnuchin was asked about yesterday uh, was the uh, sort of backdoor appointment of someone to lead the office of the Comptroller of the Currency uh, without having to get confirmed by Congress. Um, And this actually leads to the potential for some of these agencies to work together and change regulations outside of the purview of Congress. Can you talk a little bit about what the scope for regulatory change is uh, from the agency level? So this is exactly how Dodd-Frank is going to be rolled back. Uh, If you come in 2020 and look back at what's happened, this is how it's going to happen. So you can essentially roll back the majority of Dodd-Frank via the regulatory process and bypass Congress. What they did at the OCC by putting in a new, uh, you know, acting director that's only going to be for 130 days, you know, but look at them to actually start winding down the compliance and the interpretive guidance and how people should react or comply with Dodd-Frank. There's a lot of things that they can do to the Volcker rule, to, you know, mutual fund regulations, to even capital, change how things are calculated. And so the regulatory process is the easiest way to roll back Dodd-Frank. The problem is it just takes a lot of time. Have we seen any progress whatsoever in any uh, regulatory body toward lighter regulation? Not yet. I mean, I think the SEC and the CFTC are the ones that are ahead of the game. You know, they're they're now led by Trump appointees. You know, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC are still led by Obama appointees. In the prudential banking space, they usually have to agree. So that's going to be a little bit later. But on the SEC, CFTC front, things actually impacting the markets. We've begun to see some technical changes. uh, But, you know, at the whole part, you know, most of the Dodd-Frank still remains as is today. Uh, And real quick, Nathan, on the tax reform side, are there any deadlines we should be keeping? an eye out uh, that would prompt some real uh, kind of uh, soul searching with respect to our tax code. You know, I think I think if you look at what Congress has to do, June and July is probably going to be spent a lot of time talking about the FBI director. August is recess. September, they're going to have to be doing government shutdown and debt ceiling. So I think October, November is really when uh, I think you're going to see some more debate. But again, a lot of it depends on what's going to go on with health care and what's going to happen with the president. I love how you say, you know, June and July, people are going to be looking at the FBI. I thought you were going to say people are going to be spending a lot of time in the beach, you know, <laughs> contemplating their political careers. Uh, I imagine it's been a bit of exhausting of an exhausting time uh, to keep track of both the developments as well as potential, uh, you know, red flags that you really ought to be paying attention to that could actually have a change. Uh, and we really appreciate you following all that for us. Nathan Dean is a government analyst of for financial services. Uh, he works at Bloomberg Intelligence. He is coming to us from a Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington, D.C., uh, talking about what the implications are leading uh, to as far as financial reform and tax uh, changes.
Well, we've heard a lot about uh, President Trump's upcoming odyssey around the world. Uh, he's going to be uh, spending eight days across the Mideast and Europe. And uh, Marty Schenker is the senior executive editor of Global Economics and Government here at Bloomberg News. And he comes to us now from Washington, D.C. Marty, can you just start by explaining what the purpose of this trip is, other than a nice uh, a bunch of photo opportunities and a nice distraction? Well, every president has to have his first trip abroad, and this is it. (laughs) All right. Um, So the purpose really is for Donald Trump to establish his presidential stature in the world stage. Um, So it's a carefully choreographed uh, exercise in being presidential. (laughs) And I think a lot of people are anxious to see just how he performs. This, This White House is not been a hallmark of organization and choreography, um, but they have put a tremendous effort in this one. So uh, let's see how it turns out. Well, and when you talk about uh, careful choreography, I think that the big fear here is that President Trump goes off script, right? Well, yes. And that it's not just uh, outside the White House. I think that that's true inside the White House. Um, So uh, some of his more senior uh, and trusted aides will be traveling with him at various points, um, trying, making sure he he stays on message. What Um, is the message? The message is, you know, these are important relationships that Uh, If he wants to fulfill his agenda of making America great again, it's not something he can do in a vacuum. Uh, He is going to need the help and cooperation of various people he's going to see uh, on this trip. So he has to make sure that those relationships are not upset and, in fact, strengthened, Uh, Saudi Arabia being a great example of that. And we've heard a lot about, uh, you know, the potential fight against ISIS, uh, Islamic State, uh, as as well as just terrorism in general. But will there be any trade negotiations or anything beyond just uh, the general spirit of cooperation? I don't think you're going to see any any trade uh, issues come up with any specificity. Um, we have we Bloomberg has reported that the uh, on the receiving side of Donald Trump, they've had a tough time figuring out who to talk to in preparation for his arrival for the G7 and the G20. Um, and in in those venues in the in the past couple of months, they've had rather vague communiques come out of those. Um, but you will see deals, um, you know, uh, contracts, uh, investments in the U.S. Um, the foreign leaders are also interested in making sure that this goes smoothly. So uh, that part of it has been well coordinated among world leaders. They are expecting the unexpected, so they should be prepared. Yes, indeed. And Saudi Arabia, I believe, has an actual clock counting down the seconds to when President Trump uh, arrives. I want to highlight a a comment by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson in a recent Bloomberg story uh, talking about, quote, the people in the rest of the world do not have the time to pay attention to what's happening domestically here. Is that true? Well, I don't uh, I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, the U.S. economy is, uh, you know, the largest in the world. Um, what we do here on a policy in, in policy and um, in practical measures has a great impact around the world. So uh, obviously, I don't think they are as domestically focused as Donald Trump would like to take this nation. But you can't forget about Congress, too. They 
this is a uh, and the Republicans have always had a uh, a global approach to how the U.S. governs itself. So um, I'm not quite sure where that takes us, but uh, I think you will hear a very positive message coming out of Donald Trump throughout his trip. Well, I mean, I think that this was in reference to some of the controversy that we've seen recently with the firing of James Comey as head of FBI and then the subsequent uh, memos that we got. Uh, I think that there's this feeling that in the U.S. there's a lot of focus on that internationally. Uh, At least the White House is trying to project the sense that there is not any sort of really broader consequence. But is that true? I don't think you can basic you can dismiss what's happening here as of of little consequence. And I think that uh, we have a story out this morning that talks about how the uh, swamp is uh, fighting back. Um, official, the permanent Washington government that has ruled this town uh, views presidents as transients, and um, that the the uh, gears that run government continue regardless of who's president. So when those gears get uh, somewhat stuck, uh, when a special counsel is appointed, everything slows down in this town. It's already slow, and this will slow things down even more. So um, I think that that's extraordinarily consequential to how this White House governs. Um, They're going to find it much harder to get things done as a result of this. Yeah, well, um, I'm just wondering, I mean, when we talk about the staying on message, what are the opportunities that people are pinpointing for President Trump uh, to have a little bit more leeway in in sort of how he comes across? Well, I mean, he's actually, if if you've looked in the past of his encounters with world leaders when they've been coming to Washington, he's been able to do those pretty well. Um, He is, uh, and, and in fact, those world leaders look like they want to make Donald Trump look good. Um, So that is probably something that's going to be replicated on this overseas trip. There's not going to be any interest in confronting him. And we even hear that the Pope will not be preaching to Donald Trump about policy issues. So um, if if that stays true, I think he's actually this trip could could help change the narrative here. Marty Shanker, thank you so much for joining us. Marty Shanker is senior executive editor of Global Economics and Government for Bloomberg News in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.